I'm excited about today. Now, we are not starting a series today. We are, we, we are looking at a, a specific text today, but next week we are going to launch a brand new series, and I'm so stoked about it. We're going to study the book of Genesis. And we are starting next week, uh, not going to go straight through, we're going to break it up so you get a little break in there and we can look at some other texts, but we are going to work through the book of Genesis uh, in the coming year or uh, maybe more, but I'm very excited about that. But today, we're going to look at a word that God has for us in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is a book, 1 Peter, and this would also make a great book series at some point, but this was written to, uh, to the early church, the Christians uh, of that day that were Jewish, and they were, uh, uh, these Jewish believers, going through severe persecution. And so Peter had a word for them. He had some instruction for them amid their struggles. Here are some things for you to follow that, that uh, you can be obedient in, even though you're enduring great difficulty. Now, you and I, what we endure may not compare to the persecution of the early church, but we go through difficult times, and so this message has a resonance for us as well, as this travels across the centuries and finds a target in your heart and in my heart, we can benefit. We need to know what Peter said to the early church. And when you look at a text, here's a rule of thumb for you. Whenever you study a passage on your own, uh, let me just encourage you to try this out. I want you to read it a few times, and each time you read it, be looking for a key verse. A key verse. What is the crux of this passage that's going to help you if you can identify that? And I've read this passage, and I have identified what I think is the key verse. And so I just want to read that together. And I got it on the screen here. This is verse 2. Here's what Peter says. He says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And that's what this text is all about today. It's about growing up into salvation. Now, what is meant by that? I believe that Peter is talking about spiritual maturity, that we mature in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we're going to ask the following question in your notes. How can I grow spiritually in times of difficulty? Now, some of you are like, well, here we go again, Pastor Scott, with the growing spiritually, with the discipleship. Don't we get enough of this? Don't you understand? I'm going through so much in my life. I can't be concerned with spiritual growth. I've got a lot of irons in the fire. I can barely keep my head above water right now. You don't have any idea what I'm dealing with at home, at work, personally, medically, emotionally, mentally. What makes you think I've got the bandwidth, the attention, or the energy to think about spiritual growth? Well, listen to me. Because of all those things, that we just listed is never more important for you to be preoccupied with growing spiritually. It is precisely because of all that. When I was in high school, I excelled at one sport. I know what you're thinking. Basketball. (laughs) No, you know it wasn't basketball, right? No, I was a wrestler. I was a pretty good wrestler. Imagine that, me being good at a sport that requires you to be low to the ground. All right? I can't get much lower to the ground. But I was a wrestler, but by the time I was a senior in high school, uh, there was a goal that was left unachieved. I had never won the state wrestling tournament. I'd won region a couple of times. I'd done well in conference. I was ranked in the state, but I'd never won state. And so that became my goal. And so my dad and I, uh, we started to prepare 
for the accomplishment of that goal my senior year. And so the summer leading up to my senior year, my dad sent me to the wrestling camp at Oklahoma State University. They had a historic wrestling program there, still do. I went down there. I got to meet their collegiate wrestlers, some of them national champions. I got to meet some Olympians. In fact, the guy that ran my circle that worked out with my weight class uh, was not a standout on their team, but he did go on to be quite accomplished in athletics. In fact, he got into MMA, and he became the UFC champion, and his name was Randy Couture. I don't know if there's any MMA fans in here, but you know who Randy Couture was. Well, I got to meet Randy Couture before he was Randy Couture. He had a mullet back then, for crying out loud. And uh, I had a great experience doing that, and so it all led up to my senior year, first match of the year. I'm in Sioux City, Iowa. I set foot on that mat. I face off with my opponent, whistle blows. I wrestle real well for the first period. Second period comes, coin toss. I win. I choose down because I want to get the escape, a reversal, something, and I get down in my base position, whistle blows. I explode out of that base. I plant my foot. My goal is to peel his fingers away from my waist, turn out, and face him. That's what you're supposed to do, except I was wearing brand new wrestling shoes, and the traction was so good. When I planted my foot, my body moved. My foot stayed right there. And this guy brought me down hard to the mat. And what ended up happening is my right foot came all the way up and met my right hip. Back like that. And I kid you not, I heard, I heard a pop. And then the gym heard a shriek (laughs) from me. And a place went silent. And I had to forfeit. They carted me off of that mat. I was in that locker room with ice on my knee the rest of the night. I didn't know what had happened, but I had, in fact, torn my interior cruciate ligament. And I didn't know that until the next morning when my dad took me to the doctor. And the doctor said, well, uh, I think I know what happened here, but we're going to put a syringe in, draw some fluid. If it's clear, it's probably a sprain. He'll wrestle again. If it's bloody, he's, he's going to need surgery, and his career's over. And I just laid my head back and I closed my eyes and I waited and I knew what the outcome was because I heard my dad, as he drew that fluid, I heard my dad go, oh dear God, you know, (laughs) because dads take this harder than the sons, I promise you. And so I knew my wrestling days were done, but my journey was just getting started. I ended up, after surgery, I was in that hospital room and every day this perky and annoying nurse would come in there and she'd go, okay, it's time for rehab. And I I thought to myself, lady, rehab is the dead last thing that I want to be doing. Number one, you're annoying. (laughs) Number two, I don't feel like doing rehab right now. I'm in pain. I'm tired. I got all these drugs. I'm woozy. I just want to go back to sleep. And number three, I'm depressed. I'm going through the death of a dream here, okay? I just leave me alone. I just want people to leave me alone. But you know what? It was absolutely vital that I do rehab. Because of everything that I just said, all of my emotional, physical stuff that I had going on required me to do the work and to grow and develop my knee. I had to move on from this. It was absolutely essential that I do that. Folks, it's the same way with spiritual growth. We've got to submit ourselves to the Lord and let him go to work on us precisely because of the realities of life and all of the hardships that we go through because he wants to make you stronger. He wants to challenge you. He wants to sharpen you. He wants to grow you. And folks, it's time to grow up. It's time we all grow up.
Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time in the word today, and we come expecting something, God. We come expecting you to do a work in our life, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul, excuse me, Peter, Peter is going to give us here four keys to spiritual maturity. Four keys. And the very first key in your notes, number one, we must know our standard. Our standard. In the first verse in this text, Peter is going to list five specific sins that we need to put away. Just in one verse right here. So let's look at this. Verse one, he says, so put away all malice. What is malice? That's when you've got ill intent toward another human being in your heart. You want them to fail. You have a dislike for them. Malice. He says, and all deceit. Deceit is when you're being disingenuous with someone. You're trying to manipulate them, take advantage of them. He says, and hypocrisy. I think we know what that is. We know one when we see one, right? This is someone who's a phony. They're a fraud. They're a fake. They're one way in front of other people, and then in private, they're completely different. He says, and envy. Envy, that's when you desire something that is not yours. Belongs to somebody else, or it's not something God has granted to you, and you covet that thing. And then he says, and all slander. What is slander? That's when you're, def- you're defaming someone. You're undercutting them. You're gossiping. Uh, you are stabbing them in the back. It's just not to their face. It could be in public, but you're not saying it to their face. Uh, Maybe you're talking about something you don't have anything uh, you don't you don't have anything to do with, or you have no knowledge of. This happens today. Happens on social media quite a bit. You agree? And so, why are all these particular sins listed right here? You'll notice Peter doesn't speak here of adultery. He doesn't say anything about gluttony or greed or violence. All those are bad, sure, but what do do these particular sins have in common? As I look at these, I notice these are all things that are done in secret. You don't wear malice on your sleeve. You You don't broadcast deceit and hypocrisy. You don't slander in the open. These are heinous, hushed, covert sins. And so in your notes, we gotta let go of secret sin. It's the secret sin that can fester, that can linger in the soul, and it can eat you alive from the inside out, and and you are never going to grow unless these are attended to. You cannot let them metastasize because they will become full-blown outward sin. you got to let go of these things. Put them away. How do you put them away? Peter tells us in verse 2, we've read this before, like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so in your notes, how do you put them away? Well, first, you long for the scriptures. You long for the scriptures. Peter's talking about the word of God. Uh, Now, you may have a version different from what I'm reading. I'm in the ESV. Some versions in verse 2 say, long for the pure milk of the word. Maybe that's how your Bible reads. My version says, uh, long for the pure spiritual milk. It's worded a little differently there. In the Greek, you've got the word uh, for pure. It's adolos. It means undiluted. You've got the word for milk, gala. And then you've got this third word here. And it's not uh, the the Greek term that, that means the word. That would be logos. No, this is logikon. Logikon. That is translated as spiritual and it can also mean reasonable or, or logical, logikon. So if that's true, Pastor Scott, how do you know 
that Peter is telling us that we need to long for the Scriptures. How do you know he's not saying we need to long for reason? We need to long for logic. Well, I know it's talking about the Word of God because of the context. If you look at the the end of chapter 1, that is the context. He talks about the Word of God. He says the flower fades, the grass withers, but the Word of God remains forever. And so here, when he uses logikon, he's talking about the reasonable nature of God's Word. Is the Bible reasonable? Is the Bible something that's practical in our lives? Of course it is. We don't read the Bible to become mystical. You don't read the Bible to turn into a Jedi, all right? It's not for you to just pack your head with knowledge and data and be a smarty pants. No, we come to the Word of God so that we will change by it. We will be transformed by it, you see. Uh, We come to it. You ever open the Word of God and see a picture of yourself Is it like you're looking at at your reflection in there? That's what James is talking about. James says, if a a man is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like somebody, he's like the man who comes to a mirror and sees his reflection and then walks away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. There's no change there. The Bible shows you a reflection of yourself with the expectation that a change will take place. He will show you what you need to change, what you need to seek his transformation in, you see. Some have said, we don't read the Bible, the Bible reads us. I think of the high priest in the Old Testament at the tabernacle. As he would approach the Holy of Holies, he would stop at this thing called the, uh, the, the brazen laver. All right? It was this big brass bowl. And it would be there that he would, he would take water and he would wash himself. He would undergo a purification ritual at the brazen laver before he would go and he would do the Lord's work. He had to be purified. Now, this big brass bowl, what was it made of? Well, brass, of course. But wh- wh- where did we get the brass? The brass, get this, the brass came from mirrors. The mirrors of the women that worked at the tabernacle, they would take their mirrors and they would beat them into this giant bowl. You see, mirrors back then were not made of glass. They were made of brass. And they would polish them so you could see your reflection. And now they would polish this bowl to a high reflective surface. And so here's this high priest. He's on his way to meet with the presence of God. And he stops first at this thing that is made from that in which you look and you see your reflection. And at that place, he is cleansed. He washes and purifies himself so that he is restored and able to go and to do the Lord's work. And the word of God functions in exactly the same way. We open it and we see a picture of ourself and it it does a transforming work in our life. And so by it, Peter says, we may grow up into salvation. And so we got a long for the scriptures, all right? And we read this book in a very special way, and we, we, we've got to begin with this foundation. You see, Peter talks about reading the Bible differently than Paul does. Paul says, you know, read it, study it, uh, uh, teach it, preach it, right? Meditate on it. Peter doesn't use any of those terms. He says what? He says, long for it. Long for it. And that, my friends, is foundational to everything that, that Paul is going to say about how we should read the Bible. If you don't long for it, you're just reading it. No, you need to long for it. Like how? Like a newborn infant longs for milk. How does a newborn express his desire for milk? Ah! 
right? Like a little velociraptor. There's desperation in the cry of a, of a hungry baby because there's a survival instinct in there. It's like they know if I don't get to mama, I'm going to die. And it is that kind of desperation that we need to have when we come to the word of God. I mean, that may seem extreme to you, but let me tell you something. If you have not made that commitment, if you are not spending time in the word every day, you're communicating something. Now, by the way, if that's a new concept to you, I'm not telling you you got to go home today and you got to read the whole book of Ecclesiastes. That's not what I'm saying. All right? Start small. Make a commitment. I'm going to read six verses a day. I'm going to do a chapter a week, whatever it is. But get started. Make a commitment. Because if you have not made a commitment like that, you're communicating something by your action or your lack of action. What are you saying? You're saying that you have more faith in your own ability to navigate life than you do in God. We need to come to his word because it's the only thing that stands forever. The grass withers, the flower fades. His word is eternal. And by it, we grow up into salvation. What does that mean? What, what, am, what do you mean, Pastor Scott, that I, I have to grow up into salvation? Am I not saved? Did he not save me? Am I not already saved? Do I need to keep growing in order to stay saved? No, no. No, it's a matter of your identity, you see. When you trusted Christ, you were born again. You were saved. But there's a process of sanctification. My son has been with us all summer long. He goes back to college at the end of the week. And uh, I know, oh. And uh, we had some friends over at the house, and, and they'd never met him, didn't know him, didn't know what he looked like. And they saw him, they said, now who's this young man? And we said, well, this is our son. And he was standing next to me, and they go, wow, you're big. And he'd never been told that before, but it's because he was standing next to me, you know. And I said, see, son, you just need to come home and hang with dad. Then you'll be, you'll be Mr. Big Time. And so uh, I remember when he was not big, though. I remember when he was younger. And, uh, you know, I would, he would get my hand-me-downs, right? Now I get the hand-me-ups. And, but I recall uh, sometimes I would give him, say, a jacket or something like that, and it was too big for him. But we had every expectation he was eventually going to fill that thing out. And it would fit him perfectly. But I gave it to him. It was my gift, a gift from his father that didn't quite fit him yet. But it was his and it came from his father. And one day he would fill it out and it fit just like a glove. And that is how salvation works. You receive it, it's a gift from your father. And he has an intent and an expectation that you're going to grow and you're going to fill out that identity that you now have in Jesus Christ. All right? So that's, that's your number one thing is know your standard. Number two in your notes, we've got to establish our foundation. Establish our foundation. He goes on in verse 4. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You come to him. I want you to underline the word come. You come to him. To be able to do that is an amazing concept, especially to this audience because these Christians are Jews. They're ethnically Jewish. And so in your notes, what, what does this mean? This means that through Christ we approach God. What an incredible thing. Every Jew, what they understood about the temple is that only the select few could go into that Holy of Holies. It was the high priest. You had to meet specific qualifications. You had to be the elite to enter into that place where they believed that the presence of God 
was manifest. And the whole Old Testament is replete with the idea that no one can look upon God. And that's why when he appears to Elijah and Moses, it's in a limited fashion, you see. And so the people, the populace always needed an intermediary. It always had to be the high priest that communicates on their behalf for, for, uh, to God. And the language that Peter uses here, he says, you come to him. And the means that we use to come to him is Jesus Christ. He is our access point, and he is the only way. This says that God sees him as chosen and precious. He's the, you know, the, the, the only way, the exclusive means to God. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so you come to God through Christ, you're born again. But folks, being born again is not the end of the journey for you. You don't just get your fire insurance and sit back and relax and say, I'm just going to wait till Jesus comes back. No, there is something that you must do. There, there is something that is essential for your growth. There is a purpose uh, to your growth. And in your notes, we understand that through Christ, we participate with God. We approach him through Christ, and through Christ, we participate with him. In verse 5, it says, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, I want you to notice, he calls us living stones right here. Do you remember the previous verse? What did he call Christ? A living stone. So you see what's happening here? He is the living stone. By faith, we come to him. And as we come, we become living stones. He is righteous. We come to him by faith. Now we are made righteous. He is holy, we come by faith, now we are seen and declared as holy. And so you become like him. When you come by faith, you become spiritually similar to him. And as living stones, we participate because we're being built up into a spiritual house, it says. And that word house is very, very significant because the Jew understood that word. Uh, They equated the word house with the temple. They called that the house of God. That was the place where God's presence dwelled. And so now we are being built up. We are living stones. And by those stones, a house is built. And so there is a paradigm shift being presented by Peter right here. That that the dwelling place of God is no longer going to be made of brick and mortar. It's going to be made of people. You are the house of God. And this is found some seven times. In the New Testament, I think of 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Uh, uh, the Holy Spirit is within you whom you have from God. You're not your own. When Jesus, in John chapter 2, he would go and do, do a, a cleansing of the temple. You remember when he went in there with a cat of nine tails? And he's kicking butt and taking names, man. He's like, my house is going to be a house of prayer. And he's in there, and they say, by what authority do you do this? And he he tells them at some point, he says, you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. And they scoffed at that. They're like, are you kidding me? Do Do you know how long it took to build this temple? It took decades. You would, you would threaten to destroy it and presume to be able to build it in three days. But was Jesus talking about a physical temple? No, he was talking about his own body. He was predicting his own death and resurrection. 
He would be in the grave for three days and then he would rise. So follow me here. He is using the temple as a metaphor for his body. What is it that he calls the church? His body. The body of Christ is a metaphor for the church. So folks, the church is the new temple of the Holy Spirit. Not a building. It's people who trust in Christ. That is a staggering notion right here. It's the place you seek and you find God where atonement was made. When Solomon built that temple, uh, the glory of God was manifest in the Holy of Holies. Right there above the Ark of the Covenant, you had the, the Shekinah glory of God. It was this fiery cloud that represented God's presence uh, through fire above uh, the, the resting place of the Ark in the Holy of Holies. When the church was born in Acts chapter 2, what happened? You got those disciples, they're in the upper room. Holy Spirit comes, indwells them, and what appears above them? Tongues of fire. And that is indicative of us. We are now the temple. See, that temple in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, that, that physical temple, it did not have the presence of God in it because he was in his people. That's where he was. His presence is in us. And we are called living stones. Living stones. Plural. Living stones. Always, always, always the church is referred to as a collective. You never see the church referred to as an individual. We exist in corporateness. Uh, sheep and a shepherd. Family and their father. Branches and a vine. A body with members and a head. The Bible knows nothing of of total individualism when it comes to growing in the faith, which means we grow together. We grow in community. That's why we are, are, are talking so uh, much about small groups. We're going to be launching those in the, in the coming month. You need to grow in community. And I don't mean in this big room. If all you do is come in here on Sunday morning, this ain't enough, folks. You get lost in a place like this. You need to identify with a pocket of community where you can sharpen one another, where you can challenge one another, where you can experience mutual growth. And Peter goes on, and he uses another analogy here. He says that you're to be a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood, all right? Uh, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, in your notes, we are... To sacrifice to God through Jesus Christ. We sacrifice. Did you know that? Did you know you're a priest? You're a priest. You're like, do I have to start wearing a collar backward or anything like that? No. No. Think Old Testament priest. What does the Old Testament priest do? Well, among many things, he offers sacrifices. The, most of those sacrifices were blood sacrifices. Bobby talked about this uh, earlier. You know, to, to make atonement, to symbolize atonement. Well, Jesus came. He was our atonement. So we don't need to make those kinds of sacrifices. But there are some sacrifices that we make as New Testament era believers. And if you want to write these down uh, in your margin, they're not in your notes, but there are five. There are five sacrifices that the believer makes. Number one, self. You make the sacrifice of self. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. That, that is the totality of who I am. I give it to you, God. You take my life. You sacrifice self. Second, we talked about this earlier, giving. Giving is a sacrifice. We give financially. 
Uh, that, that's the way that we identify giving unto the Lord quite often. There are other things that you can give to the Lord, uh, but we are commanded in Scripture to give financially. And we prayed over that offering earlier, uh, and it should be sacrificial, whatever you give. There's no set amount in the Old Testament. It was this, this percentage, and you know, it was very specific. How is it to be done today? How much do I give today? We're not bound to a number, so what do I give? Well, you just, you just give in accordance to how much Jesus means to you. I'll just leave that right there, okay? <laughs> you say, you sound like a pastor, Pastor Scott. And then we make the sacrifice of service, of service. We serve one another in the body. Hebrews 13 says it's good to do good and to share and to serve one another. We're going to learn our shape for serving uh, through our next steps process that's going to begin in the fall. Very excited about that because we need to serve in the body. That's a sacrifice unto the Lord. There's worship. You, you, you sacrifice through worship. That's what we're doing. When these uh, members of this team come up and they lead us in praise and we sing, the fruit of our lips gives praise to his name and that is a sacrifice. Is that how you see it? How would it change your participation level in worship if you saw it as a sacrifice? If you understood, I'm not here to be entertained I'm not here to entertain others. I am here to offer a sacrifice. It might change the way that we worship together. And then number five, you got the sacrifice of souls. That refers to how you share your faith. When you witness to somebody and you lead them to faith in Jesus Christ, that's a sacrifice. Uh, Paul talked to the Roman church. He said um, he was writing them that they would stay true, that my offering This is how Paul talked about them, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, pleasing by the Holy Spirit. He saw those whom he had led to faith in Christ as an offering to the Lord. When you lead someone to Jesus, you say, Lord, take this life that has just been born again and use it to your glory for your name's purpose. And that is a sacrifice. And these are all priestly sacrifices. There's this thing called the priesthood of the believer. A priesthood is the one who who has access to God the Father. You don't need a priest to go on your behalf. You had one. His name is Jesus. He went and now you go. And you have access. And it is Christ who makes your sacrifice acceptable to the Lord. Not all sacrifices are acceptable. Remember Cain? He rejected it. God rejected it. Why? Because it was brought with ill intent. But it is the stamp of Christ on your life that changes all of that. And so Peter returns, he says, for it stands in Scripture, verse 6, and then he quotes here from Isaiah. He says, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. That's Jerusalem, is Zion. He's laying a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in that cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? In the ancient world, that was the largest, most perfectly cut stone. It was laid first. All other stones were laid in... in, in, uh, in position to this cornerstone, it would ensure the integrity of the building. It would ensure that it was straight and true. And Isaiah originally wrote about this cornerstone. And when he wrote this, Israel was under attack from without by one of their enemies. And the people started to panic. And they said, we, 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 need, we need to reach out to the Egyptians to help us. And through his prophet, God said, no. He said, behold, I lay in Jerusalem a stone that will not disappoint you. You will not be put to shame. You won't be disappointed. Don't trust the Egyptians. Trust me. I will not let you down. 
And now Peter is quoting Isaiah and he is taking it to a higher level here. We're not just merely talking about a cornerstone that we trust in that is God in a general sense. It's very specific because this deliverance is not from a physical enemy. It's from a spiritual enemy. What is it that we are delivered from in Christ? It's from the bonds of sin. We need deliverance from sin. And so we rely on the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ, and we lean on him to stand against sin. And Peter says, if you do that, you won't be put to shame. But then he says in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, it's a different outcome. You see, if we believe and are not put to shame, then that means that those who do not believe, they're in for disappointment. One day, the Jew who has not trusted in Christ, he will awaken in eternity, and he will recognize that the Messiah came already, and he missed him. One day, the Muslim will awaken in eternity, having rejected Christ, and he will recognize that the Allah of the Quran and the Yahweh of Scripture are not the same, and that there is a true God, one true God, Jesus Christ. One day, the Hindu and the Buddhist will awaken in eternity to realize reincarnation, not a thing, and there is a true God, and he is just, and his justice will not sleep. The atheist will recognize uh, when he awakens in eternity that God is real and that he is bought into a lie. And then the moralist will awaken in eternity, and he will realize that all those wonderful things that he did are not enough to earn the favor of God. And all of this is to show us that this rejection of a cornerstone is nothing new. It's always been. It's always been. In your notes, through Christ, we understand evil and judgment. We understand all of this. Peter then quotes from Psalm 118. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he quotes from Isaiah again in verse 8. He says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Incidentally, he's quoting from the Old Testament left and right here. Are we to ignore the Old Testament? Peter didn't. Jesus didn't, Paul doesn't, and nor should we. He says there's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And we can read this and calmly understand that man is inherently wicked and has been since the fall. And this is not new. It, it has been and it always will be until Christ comes and sets things right. And we're reminded of this anytime we are rejected for our faith. Has anybody ever rejected you for your faith? You ever share your faith with somebody who's been rejected? Well, if you haven't, you need to open your mouth a little bit more. Okay? I hope, that, I hope we all do that. I hope you have been rejected because it means that you're opening your mouth and you're talking about Jesus. Because if you do that, you will experience rejection. And, and that, that's, that's life. That is expected. Jesus told us. That this would be the way it would be. He said to his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know it hated me before it hated you. In Luke, he says, the one who rejects you rejects me. But he says, but the one who hears you, hears me. And then number three in your notes, we, we've got to cherish our position. Peter gives us three beautiful pictures, and he references another Old Testament passage in Exodus he says, verse 9, but you are a chosen race. You're a chosen race. You know what that means? It means that in your notes, we belong to him. 
We belong to him. We are a chosen race. Now, we're all different colors. We're all different ethnicities. We, we might have different accents. But if you know Christ, you and I, we're the same race. We are the same race. And we are a chosen race. We belong to him. We descended from him. A race descends from a single ancestor. The human race descended from Adam. Adam was created in perfection. He fell in sin. And so guess what? Everybody descended from Adam after that point is sinful. We all look like Adam. We all, we're all a bunch of little sinners. But Jesus is called by Scripture the last Adam. Because when he was born, he was born perfect. And if we come to him by faith and we trust in him, now we are descended from him. We are a chosen race. And not only are we a chosen race, we are, as Peter now says, a royal priesthood. We're a royal priesthood. Did you know that you're royalty? That means in your notes, we have nobility and access. Nobility and access. You are a priesthood. We've established that, but you're not just a priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. And you don't just have access. You've got access because of your nobility. You are royal. You will reign with him one day. He's coming back. He's going to reign. Who's going to reign with him? We are. There was a song a few years ago. We're going to be royals. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, not that kind of crowd. Anyway, that's us. And then, uh, uh, what kind of nation are we? He says, you're a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know what that means? It means in your notes, we are reserved for his purpose. You're a holy nation. You are holy. To be holy is to be set apart. You're reserved for something important. You ever feel that way? I'm meant for more. Well, you are. You're meant for something so much more than what this world offers. Verse 10, once he says, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, you've got a promise on your life. God made a promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I want to make you a mighty nation. How does a nation arise? How is a nation populated? Through reproduction. Well, Abraham was old. His wife was old. So how was this going to happen? They were well past child-producing years by human logic. And yet God promised he was going to be a mighty nation. How would it transpire? How would that multiplication happen? It would have to happen by faith. God would do it. They had to have faith that God would cause them to multiply. Well, we are a holy nation. How does a nation populate? How does a nation multiply? Through reproduction. How is that going to happen? By faith. We are to believe in the identity that God gives us, and we live accordingly. And sometimes that means we open our mouth as we live accordingly and we speak the gospel and the world witnesses that and hears that and observes that and they are moved to belief and they are brought in by faith and they are added to the number of the righteous and then we all begin to grow and multiply, you see. And then number four in your notes, we've got to embrace our mission. We're told to proclaim his excellencies. Before you can do that, you must become excellent. You've got to become excellent. Uh, not aligned with the world, but aligned with Christ. Here's what Peter says in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles 
Some versions say as aliens and strangers. All right? We are just travelers here. We are just passing through. I heard an old song one time, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Right? What you need to understand in your notes is that we're to conduct ourselves as temporary residents. That's going to change everything. You know why? This world is a lot of distraction. You can get caught doing stuff and it will distract you from doing the most important thing by living for Christ. You don't want to get sucked into that. You don't want to fill up on what the world offers. I went one time to a place that was absolutely life-changing. It was a Brazilian steakhouse. (laughs) I realize we're not in heaven yet. But if that's not a foretaste, I don't know what is, all right? You ever been? They call them a shahaskaria, right? And you go in there. And the first thing I saw, my first time, I saw this salad bar that seemed to stretch for a mile. And they had all this, I mean, it was the easily, I mean, salad bar. No, this, this was like, it was just a jungle of delectable awesomeness. And there was stuff on there I had never seen before. And it looked amazing. And I'm piling it onto my plate. And then a guy comes up and he goes, uh, don't fill up here. I go, really? He goes, oh, yeah, you, you don't want to, this is, trust me, you need to wait. Just wait. And I go, okay. You know? <laughs> and I went to my table, and I sat down, and in my, at my place on the table, there was a little disc. And on one side, it was red, and on the other side, it was green. When you flip it to red, that means, whoa. When you flip it to green, that means, bring it on. And they had these gauchos, these little Brazilian cowboys. They'd run around. They had the white shirts with the red sash and the black pants and the boots. And they had these long skewers of meat. It was all you can eat meat. And they'd come over to your table and you flipped it to green. And they see the green and they go, and they show you the meat. And there's like all kinds of cots, man. There's top sirloin, bottom sirloin, filet mignon, filet mignon wrapped in bacon. Yes, and there's Parmesan pork, and there's chicken. Yeah, chicken. Anyway, you tell them what you want, they'd cut it with a knife, and it just falls on your plate, and you're just eating red meat all night long. Now, if you're a vegan, that illustration did nothing for you. Just flip it around, and you get the idea. The point is, don't fill up on what the world has to offer. There's something better, okay? Better stuff awaits. Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but you invest in that which is eternal by how you live on earth. What do you invest in? There are two things that last forever, the souls of people and the word of God. When you invest in those two things, You are laying up treasures in heaven. And then in your notes, we've got to conduct ourselves as a protection. Verse 11 goes on. It says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter says, abstain. Don't engage with fleshly desires. Our souls have been converted to Christ, but we're still walking around in this bag of meat, this tainted uh, 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 house that we live in on this earth, the body of death, Paul calls it. Uh, the old man, the old flesh, the, the, the sinful flesh. And it wages war against the soul. It wants to take you down. It wants to destroy your testimony. It is susceptible. And Paul says, don't give in. Don't give in. You rely not on the flesh, but on the spirit. And there's a struggle. We are to struggle. 
I used to lead a young adult's Bible study. And periodically we'd have Q&A. And they would submit questions and they'd be anonymous. We've kind of done some of that here. And some of these questions that these young adults would submit were very, very honest questions. I remember one. It says, why does God allow me to struggle with lust? Does he want me to sin? I appreciated the honesty of that question. I really did. And the answer that I gave was, no, God does not want you to sin, but he's perfectly fine with you struggling. He's okay. In fact, the struggle is necessary. You must struggle. It's part of the reality of the Christian life, and it's essential to your growth. You abstain, and you struggle by the power of the Spirit, not just by human effort. And the word abstain is an important word because we are intended to struggle. We're not intended to sin, but he expects us to struggle because of the reality of our dual nature. And anybody who tells you they don't struggle is a liar. Everybody struggles. We all go through it. Nobody said it would be easy. And in your notes, we've also got to conduct ourselves as a testimony. A testimony. Verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Folks, this is what it's all about. That as we struggle... But we don't fall. We don't sin, right? We, we trust the Lord and we represent him faithfully as much as possible. We're not perfect. We're going to mess up. But we keep relying on him. And as the world observes this, they are impacted and they're brought to a place of conversion. Here's a parting thought for you today. Before we can proclaim the excellencies of God, his excellencies need to be integral to us. You need an integrity uh, between what you say and what you do. Your life has to back up your faith. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Long ago, there was a missionary named Stanley Jones in the country of India. And while there, he befriended Mahatma Gandhi, the famous Indian leader. And he said to him, he asked him a question. He said, sir, what would it take for Christianity to take root in India. He asked Gandhi this. What would it take for Christianity to take root here in India? And Gandhi replied, I would suggest, first of all, that all you Christians, missionaries and all, would begin to live more like Jesus Christ. Think about that. Here's this Hindu who recognizes that the church... Doesn't look a whole lot like Jesus. Even he can see that. But oh, if it did. That would make all the difference. We got to grow up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you as, as one who needs constant growth. And I just want to say to you now, that I want to offer myself to you, God. That you would take me, that you would sharpen me, shape me, mold me, make me more like Jesus. That's the prayer of my heart, God. I pray the same for everybody in this room. On our own strength, we are weak. We are 
sinful. We're prone to all those sins that Peter lists at the beginning of this passage, God. But by your power, we come. We are made acceptable. And we may then put away that which defines us in the eyes of the world. And I pray your blessing upon this church. How I love this church, God. How I desire to see your great commission fulfilled in their lives and through them as they make disciples. And I pray your blessing upon them all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.